Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. I am Jim Grant. One of your hosts with me, as always, is uh, Eric Whitehead and the great Evan Lorenz, who is the deputy editor of Grant's. And joining us today is Christopher Balding. Christopher, good evening. You are, I was going to say good morning, which would be appropriate for the Eastern time zone, but uh, you are anything but in the Eastern time zone. He is today an associate professor at the uh, Fulbright University of Vietnam after nine years on the faculty of the HSBC Business School of Peking University Graduate School in Shenzhen, China. Christopher, why aren't you in China? <laughs> Basically, I was I was let go from my teaching contract, even though I supposedly had a contract without an end date. And I could sense the winds changing in China. I did not expect things to get politically as bad as they have in China. But uh, I saw the writing on the wall, and I looked to leave China. And uh, thoroughly enjoying Vietnam. It's a wonderful country. People are wonderful. There's a lot of things happening. And this is one of the few countries that is actively cheering on the trade war. (laughs) For those of you listening who don't know uh, Christopher's work, he's a a darn polymath is what he is. His uh, interests range from... I don't know health policy and planning to international trade and finance. And uh, he once wrote something on uh, capital controls using copper as collateral with which to disguise capital flows. And uh, not to mention implied homicide rates of international adoptees. Christopher, um, you know, when we in this country, in America, look at China, we see in a, in a way, I suppose we want to see. Uh, you saw a great deal in your uh, what, nine years there. What was the most dramatic change perhaps that led to your decision or a mutual decision for you to leave Prado? When I really began to feel that things had really shifted, from the time I walked into China, you kind of always felt that that cloud that, you know, something could happen. But I think for my early years, pre, let's, you know, in simple terms, pre-Xi administration, students would talk to you and faculty were quite open and things like that. It was, it was a relatively different environment. And I think what made me decide it was time to leave was that I noticed that even the colleagues and friends I felt were, let's say, pro-Beijing or pro-party, even they were becoming concerned about how much things had changed in China and how worrying the environment was in China, at universities in general. And so that basically laid out very clearly to me that this was not a standard type of crackdown. This was not a a, a normal shift in the winds. Um, Living in China, one of the things you kind of become accustomed to is there's almost these, it's almost like seasons changing, okay? The party's cracking down for a month or two, you know, something like that, and then they ease off for, you know, six to nine months, and then, you know, it happens again. And that this was a very different type of uh, much more sustained uh, and stronger change in the winds in China. And so when I saw pro-party, pro-Beijing friends and colleagues really changing their tune quite dramatically, um, I think that was a pretty strong signal about how much things were changing in China. You know, one of the one of the news items that uh, has attracted uh, some attention and no little concern here is a report about uh, the new, uh, maybe not so new to you, but the, the Chinese credit social credit score. Everyone, apparently everyone gets a credit score, and uh, if your credit score is not up to par, uh, you are basically mud. Could you explain how this works? So basically they are keeping incredibly extensive databases on people 
and there's a little bit of confusion because some of them are, let's say, somewhat uh, official. Some uh, some of them are, are, let's say, less official. But uh, there's ones that, you know, they, they do facial recognition. So if you're caught jaywalking, they will deduct points. And I think one of the things that, and this is, this is another one of those things that just struck us, is that it was probably time to leave. About, uh, let's say, a year ago, eight, eight, maybe 18 months at the outside, my wife comes home one day and, and she tells me about this bus stop that she's at regularly taking our kids to school. And she says, you know, practically overnight there were, she counted, I think, more than 25 different cameras on this bus stop on a, on a not quite sleepy intersection, but definitely not a busy intersection. And she says they are just putting cameras up everywhere by the millions. It's just staggering how much they're putting it up. And it really is to just monitor every phase of, of, of people's life. I was told a story about it from an African student in China and that was he was in his apartment one night and there's a knock on the door and, and he goes and answers it and there's the police there and he's like, oh, what's the problem? And the police say, oh, well, we just wanted to check uh, what was going on because we saw whoever was in this apartment was accessing a lot of foreign IP addresses. So we wanted to know what was going on. This social credit is just being used to monitor all aspects of, of, of people's life, um, from the websites they access to where they go about, where they walk throughout the city every day. But Christopher, as you kind of look to the mainland today, what are you seeing in terms of, I guess, economic activity? And part of the reason I ask is official GDP is showing growth of like six and change, like it always does. But when we look at kind of other indexes like the uh, the Space Node China Manufacturing Index, which uses satellite pictures to gauge activity, it's potentially indicating a contraction. What's the state of the Chinese economy as we're kind of intensifying these trade squabbles with the U.S.? I'm not ready to say contraction, but I would lean much more in the direction that economic growth is in the low single digits at best, one, two, maybe three percent at the outside. If you look at individual products, for instance, on the consumer side, nothing is growing and a bunch of things are contracting quite significantly. Even in real estate, there's significant problems in real estate. Most industry is, is coughing. I think just about the only industry that I would say is growing robustly is the steel industry, and there's a lot of money going into real estate construction at the moment. There's a lot of caveats, but I'll just leave it for that at the moment. I would definitely lean, I'm not ready to say uh, like a full-on contraction, but I would lean much more in the direction of, of the satellite data. The GDP data, I think everyone has just uh, accepted that it is inaccurate. And I think what is worrying is the over the years, because of the debt buildup, you've basically seen Beijing give themselves much, much less room to operate. They, they haven't addressed these problems early on, and so now the, the entire system is so incredibly tightly wound that they've given themselves less options. They can't uh, go out and do like a large stimulus um, like they could in, in normal times. Devaluing is going to be a very difficult, you know, let's leave aside the politics for a minute. They, they can't devalue by any significant amount because of the amount of uh, U.S. dollar debt that they have coming due in the near future. If they devalue uh, and foreign investors aren't going to be inclined to roll that debt. And so they basically backed themselves into a corner. It's going to be very, very hard. And at this point, it, they're, they're facing a decision within, within probably the next year, maybe two at the absolute outside, as to which medicine they want to take. And it's going to be very interesting to see which medicine they want to take because I don't talk to anybody in China that says, wow, we're, we're doing quite well. Don't believe the headlines. We're doing well. I haven't talked to anyone in China within the past few months 
And I think that is in, that is that should be something that is increasingly concerning to a lot of people. Hey, Christopher, this is this is Jim again. Uh, you know, uh, you left China. Uh, no doubt, the same thought has occurred to others. No doubt, others have taken the same action. But one would also want one's money out of China, no? And have, g- given the kind of sinister turn of the politics of the surveillance state, uh, China has moved to control or restrict capital flight. Is it succeeding in that, or is it failing in that? In the sense, if you backdate this to about 2016, one of the most little-known policy changes that I think most people have forgotten about is in January 2017, they implemented effectively a form of bank rationing. And by that, I mean they went to a one-to-one bank rule where individual bank branches could only send a U.S. dollar out of the country for every dollar that they received into the country. And I think that is, they have adhered pretty closely to that. The differences that you're seeing are actually relative rounding errors. That doesn't mean that there isn't fraud or, you know, things that people are doing to get money out of the country, but they have enormously slowed that difference so that, you know, the differences that you're talking about, on a, if, you, if you're using one-to-one as a baseline, that they're probably, they're probably spending out a dollar and a penny or two uh, above and beyond. It's actually pretty minimal. It's nothing that they couldn't handle for a while. Is that still true? I mean, one thing that's amazed me in watching China in the last decade is every time the authorities think they've stuck their thumb in the dike and they've kept uh, capital flight from happening, whenever there's a problem and Chinese entrepreneurs want to get their money out, they seem to find a new means to do so. Are entrepreneurs trying to get their money out again? And if so, are they finding alternative means to kind of work around the system? Because that's kind of what they've been very good at doing. You're, you're absolutely right. And they have been absolutely amazing at, at doing that. I will say this is one time, I think the data and the stories I hear seem to be pretty consistent that China is actually doing a pretty good job controlling that. That Again, this isn't to say that there's no leakages, but all evidence I think seems to indicate that it actually is holding up uh, pretty well. Let, you know, let me tell you one story. I was talking with somebody that had that was working for a very large Chinese company, and they said that it was taking forever to get paid. And I thought they were referring to the client. So I said, oh, is, is the client jerking you around? They said, no, the client is actually fine. It's the state administration for foreign exchange reserves that is taking forever. And they went on to recount all the paperwork that they have to submit. And it's not just, here's our bill and, you know, the bill was approved by the client, you have to submit basically everything short of the stool samples for your time in China. You know, basically, you know, all those video cameras that are watching you as a foreigner where you go, every hotel receipt entry, you know, exit and entry into hotels and, you know, everything under the sun to prove that you were in China actually doing work. And this seems to, you know, I've heard stories of, I was talking with someone the other day and they said, stays in China as a foreign company you should expect about anywhere from four to six months delayed to get paid. And so it seems like they've done a pretty good job staunching. And I think one of the things is that should be on people's radars also very much is that I think there's a lot of evidence indicates that they are much uh, they are much shorter on dollar liquidity than most people realize. I think this is something that is probably on China's radar, which is one reason that they are trying so hard to keep that, those capital controls very strictly in place. But, you know, uh, Christopher, as soon as uh, you bring up the topic of dollar liquidity and a possible shortage thereof in China, people will say, well, what about all those hundreds of billions of dollars of treasury securities that the Chinese officially hold? Uh, why don't they just sell those? What do you say to that? So there's a couple of things there. So first of all, you know, I forget 
want to say China has a banking system now that is probably at... It's 47% of world GDP, but $40.1 trillion. Okay, 40, okay, there we go. $40.1 trillion. And uh, foreign exchange reserves are 3.1. And so that puts us at, what, 7%? So if you think about even a small percentage of the Chinese population that says, I want to move to Australia foreign exchange reserves are gone in the blink of an eye, number one. Number two, this idea that China is somehow a frugal saving nation that doesn't have a lot of debt is just, at this point, flat out wrong. Even in U.S. dollar debt terms, it's not a large relative number relative to the Chinese financial system, but it is very large in absolute terms, and that creates these problems. They have roughly $1.3 to $1.4 trillion in debt coming due over the next year. Okay, so if you remember when we were talking about devaluation, part of the reason that they can't devalue uh, over the next 12 months is if there is any type of significant devaluation. If even a small, even if even, you know, a quarter of those rollovers that they have to do in the next 12 months, bankers start getting nervous, all of a sudden you could create a domino effect or you're going to burn through reserves pretty quickly. You're going to, you know, lose a half trillion in reserves real fast, rolling those and making sure that a whole bunch of companies don't don't collapse. So they have roughly a little more than two trillion in total U.S. dollar debt and 1.3 to 1.4 coming due in the next year. So that three trillion dollars actually looks a lot, lot smaller than it really is. Uh, Christopher, putting all this together, what does it mean for, I guess, the rest of the world and emerging markets in particular? You've already said that you don't think they can pull off another stimulus like 2009 or 2016. You've already said they've slowed down um, external payments because they're maybe short of uh, foreign currency. But so much of the emerging markets have hitched their wagon to, to China's uh, you know, tail in terms of like exporting the iron ore, copper, coal that China needs to you know, feel its fixed investment model. What does it mean for the rest of the world? Well, if Let's assume China just has a normal slowdown and they report, you know, semi-accurate growth of, of 3%, 2%, whatever the number is. I think that would have a significant slowing effect. Some countries would probably go into recession. I don't think that would be a, I don't think that would be the end of the world. I think you're already seeing a lot of this slowing activity in, in, in emerging markets. If you look at pan-Asian numbers, and remember, Asia is the largest trader with China. We, you know, all the attention is on the U.S. Asia is actually the largest trader. All the Asian trading numbers that you're looking at, from Japanese machinery to Indonesian coal, all of those are quite, quite slow. And they have been basically in near-perfect correlation with, with what's been happening in China. Now, whether that's causation, correlation, any number of things, very difficult to entangle in real time but it is most definitely happening all throughout Asia. You're also seeing similar slowdown with a lot of African countries who are heavy exporters to China for very similar reasons. You're, you're already seeing that. On the off chance that there is, let's say, a significant crunch, that would be quite worrying. I think that would be quite worrying to, uh, to people around the world for, for, for many reasons, not just because of the financial and economic issues, but there would clearly, even just in China, be an enormous flood of political issues and, and worrying security issues. Christopher, tell us about Huawei, this uh, company that is either famous or infamous, either the cutting edge of a, of a I don't know, of a, of a of a nefarious uh, communist Chinese uh, plan of uh, techno-domination or merely the cutting edge of something highly desirable, as George Gilder argued in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. But Huawei, what do we make of it? And ought we to allow it in our living rooms? So the first thing is that Huawei likes 
say that it is a private company, but in reality, it's not. Huawei is actually owned by the employee union, and in when we say employee union, we're not talking like the AFL-CIO, <laughs> we're not talking like the local iron workers. In China, the way things work is there is one national union. The the gentleman that currently in China that currently heads this union is very close to Xi himself. To let you, to give you an idea of how close he was, he was actually the person that she sent to Sichuan and Chongqing to clean up after the Boshi Lai mess down there, and so he is very close, considered somewhat of an enforcer. He runs this union now for Xi, and so this union, um, the Huawei union, is under this umbrella union that is run out of Beijing, and so. It, basically, this makes Huawei effectively a state-owned company in China. In China, corporate classifications are done similar to like LLCs, C corps, etc. And it's the same thing with with state-owned firms and things like that. So the specific classification of Huawei is what they call either a public or mass organization that is owned by the people. And so it's not technically a state-owned company, only because that's a different corporate classifier. But that public or mass organization essentially makes them a state-linked, state-owned type uh, company to think of it in, in Western vernacular. And they have benefited over the years from Beijing largesse.、Um, just to give you a couple of ideas, back、um, in about、uh, I, I could go back and check the dates. Back in about 2005, we have records of them getting assistance from the China Development Bank, where at the time they had a couple billion in sales. They were getting, they were receiving commitments from the China Development Bank that was to、uh, intended to be basically vendor financing that was, you know, two or two and three times their annual revenue. So it was basically one of the stories you hear from、uh, from countries that, that that buy Huawei gear is that they would always show up with a banker that said. Says, Here's the check. Now give it back to Huawei. No questions asked. Finance. We have this process going on multiple times throughout history. And even if we look at something that just came out、uh, a couple hours before we we jumped on here, there is the current issue with the chip ban、um, with regards to、uh, ARM chips. Now Huawei was working with、uh, with the Chinese branch of ARM that is 50 that was purchased recently. I think six months ago,、uh, maybe a year ago. By a Chinese, what was sold as a private equity firm.、Um, but if you actually peel back, who owns this private equity firm? This private equity firm is owned by the China Investment Corporation,、um, the China Development Bank, the Silk Road Fund, State Administration of Foreign Exchange Reserves. So this is basically the Ministry of Finance purchasing chip designs for Huawei. Okay, so this gives you an idea when、right. you、okay. talk about how intimately tied Huawei is to the state. So it's one big happy family. It sounds it sounds pretty cozy. It is one big happy family, absolutely. Christopher, I, I, you know,、um, capitalism、uh, is all about the uh, uh, the free flow of information and the、uh, process we call price discovery, which has to do with also、uh, essentially with information. How does this work in a country in which information is so tightly controlled? How does it work with regards to what? Like, uh, how does how no how do, how, do, how does an economy function when、uh, the state has、uh, a monopoly on、uh, who gets to know what? It seems to me a, 
that you know, I'm reminded of this French uh, this remark attributed to the French logician that it's all very well in practice of what's the theory. So this uh, China is meant to be this great economic dynamo, the second largest or counted a certain way, the largest economy in the world, uh, certainly the one that is favored uh, by destiny and history, some say. And uh, But that's all well and good, except how does this work when uh, information is uh, parceled out by the state? Isn't this the formula for a huge systemic miscalculation especially when it's aggravated by the most enormous distortions in money and credit we've ever seen in the history of the world. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple of firsthand stories that I've been told. And I'll start off with just a, a, an example of what you're what I'm referring to. If you've ever seen that, if you've ever if you've ever seen the movie The Princess Bride, and there's this classic scene where the hero is chasing the villain, and he catches up with him, and they both decide to have battle of the wits to the death, and the the hero pours poison into a cup, and then the villain decides which cup he gets to drink. And he starts off and he says, well, clearly I can't have the cup in front of me because you would want the poison as far away from you as possible, but then you know that I would know that, so clearly you would put the poison in front of you, then you know that I would know that, so you clearly would not do that. And they just go around in circles. Chinese treat information that way. The Chinese state treats it that way. And what I mean by that is Chinese know that you can't trust public information. Okay, there's a lot of censorship and everybody thinks, oh, well, the Chinese don't really grasp that. No, they get it. They get that there's censorship. But what happens then is they don't know what to believe. And so because if they start assuming that all public information is lies, they then learn that some public information is true. And the state knows to sprinkle in enough public information so that people don't just do the opposite. And so people come up with ingenious ways to solve this information gap. In 2012, when there was a reported two attempts with Boshi Lai, there were, there were conversations that were lighting up Chinese uh, chat rooms, and they were all about Teletubbies. And you say, well, wait a minute, why are they talking about Teletubbies? Because the Chinese language, the, one of the words for Teletubbies was a lot like some of the leaders' names. And so rather than talk about the leaders on chat, they decided to talk about Teletubbies. And it took the censors a few days to figure out that every, why everybody was talking about Teletubbies, okay? How information gets exchanged like that it becomes this entire cat and mouse game. Information gets exchanged a lot. This is one of the things that happens is, is rumors in China, I think, are, are much more prevalent because there's, there's very little information discovery. It's very hard to weed out bad information because you're much more likely in China to trust your friend who you have a relationship with rather than something that you necessarily read online because you know that it's censored, you know that it's uh, redacted, controlled. And so this creates enormous scope for bad information to, to flourish because there's not, there's not a lot of interest in truth. And when you talk about political miscalculations, one of the things I heard, and this was part of that shift in political winds I referenced earlier, um, I'd heard from many people in Beijing that people were not even being allowed to talk about non-controversial topics. They were, they were self-censoring upwards so that the, so that the senior uh, leadership was getting heavily redacted information. One day I got a call from a journalist saying, hey, I need a pro-Beijing quote on a relatively non-controversial topic. If I remember correctly, the topic was like pension reform, okay? Not exactly a, a lightning rod issue. And so I called up a couple of pro-colony, pro-party 
colleagues and I said, are you interested in talking to, to this person? And all of them said, nope, don't call me, lose my number, I'm not talking to any journalist, because there was such fear, even if you were trying to render a pro-party opinion, there was such fear about rendering any opinion at all. Uh, Christopher, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier. You said that the Chinese economy is slowing. You can actually see it in like Indonesian or South Korean exports to China, and you expect it to slow further, and you don't think that they're capable of doing like a 2009 or 2016 stimulus. My question for you is, when you look at the world, is this inflationary or deflationary? We've been told for the last 20 years China has exported deflation just because it's so cheap to manufacture there. But as we have tariffs put on Chinese goods, as people rip up their supply chains and move to Vietnam of all places, what does that do for, I, I guess, the global price level? Uh, especially as China's having a vast amount of its food destroyed through um, the swine flu and through army war marches on uh, crops? Well, I think you would probably see very, you would see a lot of cross currents with inflation. If you look at food price inflation in China, um, I think for the foreseeable future, it's going to have a food inflation in China and obviously spilling over in major commodities, uh, especially in proteins, that's going to have a significant impact on China and the rest of the world. I ran some rough calculations the other day. Unofficially, swine flu in China now has killed more pigs. Basically, if, if you excluded China and Europe, imagine killing every other pig in the world. That's almost the number of pigs that, you, that have died with uh, swine flu. And from what my sources tell me in China, it's still growing quite rapidly or spreading quite rapidly. So basically, you can expect a lot of food price inflation throughout China. That's going to spread. If there is a significant slowdown, however, I think one of the things that you could expect is that there would, is that there would be basically significant deflationary pressures at the same time, especially in asset markets. Um, if, you look at, uh, if you look at a lot of Chinese assets, everything from the currency to real estate, um, to stocks, uh, other things like that. Um, I think there's a significant uh, there's a significant asset bubble in China. Um, just to give you an idea, in Shenzhen, where I lived, where the official GDP was like twenty thousand dollars a year in Shenzhen, um, I lived in a relatively normal neighborhood. It was it was it was a comfortable neighborhood for sure. But my the apartment I lived in probably would have sold for almost two point five million dollars. Just to, just to give you an idea. So that's a multiple of, a, of, a, of at least 100 or so. That's the type of asset bubble that you're dealing with in China. The other thing is, is if there was some type of stimulus uh, or if there is some type of broader slowdown, I think you could expect that there would be a lot of, there would be a lot of people vying for that business that would put a lot of deflationary pressure. One of the things that I think you would see happening if there is a Chinese stimulus package is because of the capital controls, they're able to take a lot of those global inflation pressures. You know, you've clearly seen pockets of that money spilling over, Vancouver housing, Sydney housing, things like that. Previously, you saw them in commodities markets like iron ore and things like that. But I think generally speaking, because unless there's significant spillover into very specialized markets, I think the broader inflationary impact is going to be relatively contained with the capital controls in place. Christopher, thank you for all of this. I, um, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the entire far-flung Grants podcast audience and expressing our gratitude that you're no longer in China and therefore can talk about China. Um, so uh, I know it's, it's been, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been a pleasure indeed. It was very enlightening and enjoyable time. Okay. Till the next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us. This is Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield. Thank you again, Christopher.